Hey, this is Squat. Thanks for listening to the MDPH podcast. In today's episode, I have uh, invited my friend Sam. Uh, she's an MDPH student at Stanford, and we chatted about lots of stuff, uh, including and mainly her research in genome editing and its application in lysosomal storage diseases and more. Um, after the interview, um, I really think that she is super cool and um, she's doing a lot. She works really hard and she's also focused on actually making impacts. And um, I think she's one of those people, uh, young people, who's doing the right thing the right way and uh, in the right place and all that. Um, I'm very excited for her, uh, for her future and what she's going to do in many diseases. So maybe you know, decades later, we can look back at this podcast and I can uh, brag about how I interviewed Sam when Sam was a graduate student. Anyways, so hope you enjoy um, the chat with Sam. It's 1 a.m. And yesterday, I wanted to start the podcast because I was reading paper and I want to deliver this complicated paper in an easy way to the world. And I'm glad that I used Anchor.fm because I went to their website, made an account, made a recording, and boom, boom, bam, I have my first podcast. And tonight, I finished my second podcast with Anchor. So if you want to tell the world something that you're passionate about, download the free Anchor app or go to the Anchor.fm to get started. Hey, Sam. Hey. So today um, we have a Sam, my classmate from Stanford here with us. Um, Sam, do you want to tell everybody else about uh, who you are and uh, your background a little bit? Sure. So like Quad said, I'm Sam. Uh, I'm an MD PhD student at Stanford. I also did my undergrad at Stanford where I majored in uh, biology and chemistry. And I did an honors thesis in biology. And throughout my time at Stanford, I worked in the lab of Matthew Porteous and um, worked on some some projects related to genome editing there. And um, that was actually something that really inspired me to want to do an MD-PhD. And it's uh, my experiences in that lab and my positive experiences at Stanford and undergrad are what um, prompted me to want to stay at Stanford as well for my MD-PhD. And how did you um, come across uh, Dr. Porteous's lab and uh, what made you stay there for so long? Mm. You know, genome editing was, was something that was becoming a really hot topic at the time that I entered undergrad. And I was looking through professors associated with a program called BioX, which is a summer grant for undergraduates to do research. And Matt Porteous was one of the BioX professors. And reading the bios, I saw that he was uh, a professor that focused on genome editing and specifically genome editing with a therapeutic uh, tilt to it, which I was interested in. Um, the idea that genome editing could be used to help treat diseases. And so I reached out to him and I applied for the BioX grant. And I actually did not get the grant, but he did. Uh, he still supported me to do research that summer. So Matt, Matt has been a great mentor. And then um, you, you, you stayed there for like four years? Uh, I guess it was three. three. I started the summer following my freshman year. That's a long time to stay in the same lab, like one lab. It's rare for me to find somebody who's just done one lab for that long, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really, generally a, really, a, a positive thing though. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a longitudinal project, a first author publication that came out of it, um, which I think... Uh, if I had not stayed there and I'd switched around in labs, it might have been more difficult right. to, to do. Because a lot of times, like we find students who have done like lots of research, but it's just three months here, three months over there. 
you know, it's hard to start anything or get anywhere with that short amount of time. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, if it's bioscience, I guess. Mm. And then uh, you also did some like sports, right? Like some sports. Yeah, yeah. I was actually on uh, Stanford's rock climbing team. So um, there is a collegiate circuit for for climbing and Stanford yeah. has a, actually a really strong team, a team even that has attracted really strong climbers to Stanford partially because i mean stanford's amazing school anyway but partially yeah. because the climbing team was very strong um is it yeah. like okay to say that rock climbers can do a lot of pull-ups yes that's I mean, generally accurate okay so uh, well what is like a rock climbing range like like do i have to do like 50 in a row to be considered minimum rock climber power of the show? minimum definitely not climbing i mean there's a range of, of climbers if you're talking professional level those those people can easily do 50 in a row. I mean, they can do many one-arm pull-ups in a row, which is wow. really, really difficult. But yeah, they're very strong, upper body strong. Yeah. I want to be able to do 50 in a row. You should. If you do a lot of rock climbing and train a lot of pull-ups, maybe, maybe you can get there. And be really light. <laughs> Have little legs, little leg yeah. muscle. <laughs> that helps. It's like the forearm gives up before the shoulder. Oh, so actually climbing would probably really help you if your forearm's are limiting the limiting point because I think everybody's form is limiting point. Definitely for climbing universally that that's why people kind of top out in their ability to climb. It's not that you can't pull hard enough. It's that you can't hold on to the holds that are too yeah. small or, or for, you can't hold on for long enough. Yeah. How long did you rock climb? I've been climbing since I was eight years old. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I don't climb quite as much anymore. And I, so actually my freshman year at Stanford, I, um, it was right before I started in the lab. So it was actually the summer after my freshman year. I tore my labrum climbing. Ooh. Yeah. And I had to have surgery to repair it, which is it involves a year long kind of physical therapy process to recover from. So um, is that the, is that the, what was the thing? Something signed like a anterior. anterior. Uh, yeah. I had a, I actually had a bank heart lesion. So oh. <laughs> I don't, that's the anterior inferior, the labrum, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Same kind of um, position that we learned also for <laughs> the classic position you tear it in is exactly the position I tore it. Tore it wow. In. Mm-hmm. I will never forget <laughs> that. I'll never forget that lesion ever yeah. in my life. Good. Okay. I'm, I'm just like shocked. Um, <laughs> I guess it's that time of the like, day. So um, you did research at uh, Matthew Poirier's lab. Um, how is him like as a pi like, how is he like he's not gonna listen to this don't worry about it and nobody's gonna listen to this <laughs> that's, that's okay. gonna talk to him <laughs> i have only very positive things to say um he's cool huh i, I think he's cool he's he is cool um he's a busy guy he cares a lot about his research and also the application of his research to the clinic um he's also he still does a little bit in the clinic because he's an md phd so he sees yeah. some patients and i he's very involved in the pediatric bone marrow transplant clinic um yes and, sees a lot of the kids with like sickle cell disease and, and the different thalassemias. Um, so he was a very inspiring mentor. And he also let me as an undergrad have a lot of freedom and, and just to take like the ability to take risks in his yeah. lab and, and have resources to just, you know, play with and, and to run ahead with. And I think that can be, that can be rare for, un, for undergrads to be presented with that kind of opportunity because often resources are limited. Oh. Um, so I was really lucky to end up in Matt's lab because I think having that freedom helped me really grow as a scientist um, and is responsible for a lot of the success that followed for me. That's nice. Do you plan to continue working in his lab now? I, I will not be continuing simply because I think it's important to have a diversity of experiences sure. in science. 
Um, so I'm, I'll be focusing on kind of a, a slightly or a fairly new area or a different area, I should say, um, of research than what I did in undergrad and a different lab. Mm-hmm. Um, still some connections, which is nice, but a new experience, a new thing to think about, mm-hmm. a new PI to work with. Is it a better lab, like better like physical space, you think? or? Oh, yeah. it's hard to say. I think I worked in the Loki stem cell building, which was which is really nice lab yeah. space. And I am now in the ChemH building, which is also a new nice lab. And they're both great. I think there are actually advantages and disadvantages to both, though. Um, mm. One thing I like about Loki is having desks and lab benches in the same area, which they don't mm. have in ChemH. And I think part of that is maybe that there's more chemistry going on. and You don't want to eat food. Exactly. There's yeah. more dangerous, more danger with chemistry than with biology generally. So I think that's part that's part of the reason. But I personally like to have a desk near the bench. I think it just facilitates mm-hmm. facilitates easier back and forth with the computer and the lab stuff. And yeah, for sure. And uh, who are some of your like inspirations? Who? Cool. Well, I mean, it, many scientists I've worked with. You oh, mean come in the on. science sense? Like just not not just science wise, but oh, just in okay. general. Everybody has some people they just like admire and stuff, right? Like maybe it's scientific person, maybe it's not science. Kind of you, you, you you emulate them, right? Like you or, or many people. Yeah, yeah. Give me some of yours. Okay, I'll give you a somewhat. Um, it's gonna sound random because it's not really the science at all. But no, no, I no, really, please. I really admire her. So um, I don't know if anyone has seen the the series Killing Eve, but I have been very inspired by jo- Jodie Comer because she's this actress that sort of came from not nowhere, but she wasn't incredibly well known as an actress and did this, um, this series Killing Eve. And I've just never seen anyone transform like, like her. I've never appreciated someone's acting ability so much because her character in the show is almost impossible to reconcile with her personality and her person in real life. Mm -hmm. And I was just so impressed by watching that show and, and just her skill and how much time and energy it must've taken to develop that skill and to have gone without recognition of that skill for like a, a fairly long time, but to Wait, just press forward. But she's, she's Jodie Comer, right? Yeah. She's, she's only 27. Well, yeah, she's only 27. That's true. It's not like she's, it's been forever. It's but. not like she's 61, a musician no, that no. nobody heard about. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, like true. Bill Evans is one of those, like nobody heard about him till way later. Yeah, that's true. Like, that, no, she's still young, but my gosh, I've just never, I feel like she's just one of the most talented people I've, I've ever seen perform. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Recommend that show just for honestly for Jodie Comer's performance alone. <laughs> I'm gonna watch it. What is it called? It's called Killing Eve. Killing Eve. Okay, yeah. this is crazy. You, you you just got into her. Yeah. Because of Killing Eve. I was just Eve. very impressed. I was just so impressed. <laughs> I've never oh. had a moment of of being so. I think I was I was most impressed after watching a video of her speak normally as her normal oh, self. Oh, I see. So you saw the transformation. Yeah, it was the transformation <laughs> that really really impressed me, and I think that. <laughs> <laughs> I've always just I'm now like in awe of her just just raw skill I think it would be really really awesome to feel okay. so skilled in something <laughs> anybody else um because you don't wake point, up like oh man I want to be like Jody you know yeah, <laughs> no I think uh I had another mentor actually like a lab mentor that I think I could point to more directly um who is actually also now a PI at Stanford her name's Natalia Gomez Espina and I worked very closely with her, with her and Matt's lab, and um, she was one of like the smartest people, funniest people I'd ever met. Really cared about her patients. She was also an MD PhD, um, and just worked so hard. It definitely inspired me mm. to try to bring a similar intensity to my research and to my work. 
I'm, I still wake up some days and think like, Natalia is definitely grinding today. I should grind today. So mm. I think I've seen her. Person. Yeah, I think I've met her once at the uh, retreat or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure you'll you'll see her around. She's doesn't she know. do like a sickle cell, some kind of a? Oh, she does what you did, right? Something similar. Yeah. So she was. Since I worked. She was a postdoc in Matt's lab when I was in Matt's lab. Okay. So I worked. I was actually like really directly working with her. Okay. In Matt's lab. Um, okay. So she does a similar. Um, she was working on genome editing as well in Matt's lab, but she, her focus is more on sort of a different set of diseases that were more related to her clinical practice, okay. which are lysosomal storage diseases. Okay, so basically now let's get into research. So there's this umbrella of, okay, genome editing is a technique, right? It's, it's yes. a way to mess up, change your DNA sequence. Now, the, the umbrella of the diseases that you and her and everybody else kind of, we talked about worked on, that's what, uh, that's genome editing slash what is it like change your bone marrow and then can you, can you give us like it is a yeah, genome think, editing but yeah what is it about like what's what's the similarity between everything that you guys do yeah so i think you know genome editing is a very broad topic there are a number of different types of tools that can perform uh genome editing there that can make changes to the dna and they all work differently and these tools have actually been around many of them have been around for a very long time and um one of the really hot new topics um and this i would say kind of has become almost synonymous with genome editing these days is the CRISPR-Cas9 system. And so that was a something that Matt, Matt's lab focused on. And the idea, and we talk about therapeutic genome editing, there's also many ways you can conceptualize how to use genome editing tools to, you know, as a therapy. Um, but Matt's lab focused specifically on using CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing in blood stem cells or hematopoietic stem cells as a way to treat, a, like, a, I would say a class of diseases and a somewhat diverse like general category of diseases um, that you could imagine curing by replacing a patient's blood stem cells. How, so the how, most how, obvious, yeah. How does it? How is it possible? How do you replace somebody's blood stem cells? And how yeah, many stem so cells do you have? Like three out of a million yeah. cells you replace it? Or? So I'm actually I'm not sure ent entirely sure about you know if you were to aspirate someone's bone marrow what the exact percentage of mm. stem cells would be, but it's actually a, a commonly performed technique, especially in the in the setting of cancer. Um, to do a bone marrow transplant. So you've probably heard of, you know, you can go and donate your bone marrow. And, and the reason you would do that is that if there's a patient that needs a bone marrow transplant and you are somewhat, um, you, you know, your bone marrow has some histocompatibility with their bone marrow, you can be a donor and you can donate some of your bone marrow, which contains your blood stem cells to that patient. Um, and so diseases, like the most obvious types of diseases that you can cure with a bone marrow transplant are diseases that have a failure of the bone marrow or ones like, uh, or ones where there's abnormalities in blood cell or in uh, red blood cells, which, for example, sickle cell disease is an example where the hemoglobin polymerizes and causes red blood cells to sickle. Um, and there's also the beta and alpha thalassemia, where a mutation in either the beta uh, subunit of hemoglobin or the alpha subunit of hemoglobin causes sort of an abnormal um, process when hemoglobin is assembling, and this causes a lack or a deficiency of hemoglobin, and then that ultimately impacts red blood cell function. Hmm. So those are two diseases where if you could replace the bone marrow stem cells with bone marrow stem cells that did not have these genetic mutations, um, you know, you would cure the disease because you mm -hmm. would have this, uh, all the red blood cells formed would have normal, so, you know, a normal genome. Yeah, so basically it's a replacement. So it's, it's, a, it's yeah. a treatment modality that's based on replacement. Take everything out, put a new thing in. Exactly. And then so the genome editing comes in because? 
Right. So this is a perfect segue. So mm-hmm. one uh, one thing that makes bone marrow transplant problematic in patients and often not a therapy that that people want to pursue, um, even if it's curative, is there's there's a number of complications resulting from histo incompatibility between the donor mm-hmm. and the patient. So what's so okay? Am I compatible with my sister? Like how do I no, know what is not the compatibility about? So every person has a set of genes that you might have heard of before called HLA genes. Mm-hmm. Um, and these the these genes are unique in the genome in that there are so many different versions of these genes that exist in individuals that there are, it's very rare for your set to match exactly someone else's set. Got it. And these genes are also important in immunologic function because they basically signal to your immune system, which tissues are you and which tissues are not you. And so if you have tissues from someone else and these HLA genes are not quite exactly the same, your immune system will recognize that they're not the same and they'll kill off that foreign tissue. So uh, in the setting of bone marrow transplant, this, this comes into play and is actually quite extreme because it's almost the opposite where the the donor's immune system, you're, you're essentially giving you know, a patient, a a different person's blood stem cells, which will also form their immune system. And so what can happen is a a disease called graft versus host disease, where the graft, the the donors, uh, basically bone marrow and blood stem cells develop into immune cells that Mm. see the entire patient as a foreign entity. Mm. And those blood cell or those immune cells will go and they will attack, you know, many different organs in the, in the patient that has received the bone marrow transplant. And so like I said, this is called graft versus host disease, and it can be really serious and really extreme. And because mm. of this complication, it's not, uh, you know, bone marrow transplants from a donor, mm-hmm. what we call an allogeneic transplant, mm-hmm. are, they're not, they're sort of a last a, a last choice treatment, exactly. Mm. So even in sickle cell disease, it can be managed, but not cured. And a, the curative option, which would be bone marrow transplant, is not often pursued because of this risk. I see. So basically, uh, plus some of my, like, stupid immunology understanding, but basically each person has like a, a HLA genes, right? Yeah. And uh, so you're saying that, you know, the human HLA genes are more different between each other than let's say human TB53 gene because HLA gene regions have more like more germline differences of SNPs and just way different. Yes, exactly. And then that difference is important in immunology because for immune cells to react to anything like uh, SARS-CoV-2, you know, protein, etc., cetera, uh, you have to have three things that uh, match really well. Your immune cells, uh, receptor protein, matching the pathogen uh, protein that is being presented together with the HLA stuff. So HLA holds on to the pathogen stuff and presents that pathogen or your own broken stuff and presents that to your immune cells. And when three things match really well, there's that immune reaction. What you're saying is bone marrow transplant, if you switch a person's bone marrow with somebody else's, then that somebody else's immune system might be triggered by a good representation of your own normal tissues. Exactly. Is that, is that what it is? Yep. Okay. And it will start okay. to kill off all of your, you know, many types of your tissues, which can be a fatal complication. Got it. So yeah. in right. here, your immune cells are not going to mess you up because your immune cells uh, already know your own HLA and your own material. So if a pathogen comes in, your own material is now foreign material, there's immune reaction. But in this case, uh, the difference is that the immune cell itself is different. It's from somebody else. So it's always going to be a foreign reaction. Every exactly. encounter. 
Exactly. And so because of this complication, uh, genome editing becomes an appealing alternative where you can actually, so you can take out someone's bone marrow stem cells. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that you can take out the patient's own bone marrow stem cells, use genome editing to correct the defect, and then put them back in the patient. And in this way, you can restore the function of the defective gene without introducing any kind of mismatch between the patient and the donor um, tissues. And so this could really be a curative therapy. That and, sounds and like that's the, idea. the therapy, like the, the, the way to do it. That, that's, you know, a lot of people believe that. Matt Porteous, you know, of course, is one of those people that has a lot of faith in, in this as a, as a possibly transformative approach to treating a number. And like I said, it, it's not only sickle cell disease and the thalassemias. There's, there's actually a, a many other diseases that don't first come to mind when you think of diseases that can be treated with bone marrow transplant, but um, that are amenable to bone marrow transplant. So, so yeah, yeah, every so blood cancer, right? Like every blood cancer tip can potentially be treated with that, right? Uh, you can imagine uh, possibly a way. Typically, the way that blood cancers are treated, though, um, you, if if there was a, a defect that you could find in the stem cells, then yes. Sometimes oh, those mutations arise later, and it's not in the stem cells, and then got it, got then it. it might be harder. So basically, blood cancers, you, you, you're uh, if, uh, iffy about that because there's nothing to fix in stem cell level. It's just that. The, the cells are just messed up. So that it's just replacement. You don't need to do that stem cell engineering part of it. Yeah. Normally okay. with cancers, when you do the bone marrow transplant, it's because you're doing, you're um, irradiating mm. the, the patient to kill off the cancer and that can kill off the bone marrow. And mm -hmm. so you need to replace the bone marrow. Um, but you don't necessarily need to edit any genes. You just need to make sure that it's not irradiated. Gotcha. So, so since I don't know anything here, they don't do like genome editing to edit somebody's HLA type to be exact same as like, it's not that. Okay. No, they can't. I think maybe you can imagine a future where when we had really efficient genome editing, you could mm. try to do something like that. Um, right now, you know, the, the, we're trying to do kind of the bare minimum, which is edit a single gene gotcha. in a simple way. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, or one thing that we can also do is um, rather than directly edit a gene, we can mm -hmm. use the CRISPR Cas9 technology to insert a new, what we call like a cassette, which has a number of genetic elements and re regulatory, a gene and regulatory elements attached. And it's just a whole new chunk of DNA that you can mm. put in anywhere in the genome. And you define the regulatory elements and therefore how much it's expressed. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's like a whole new entity that you insert into the genome rather than fixing you know, a little defect that oh, was already true. there. But isn't that scary though? You put that much stuff in somebody's genome? So, you know, that's a great question. And, and one um, approach that is highlighted in Matt's lab is the idea of a safe harbor. So like you mentioned, if you're going to put a, a whole new chunk of DNA into the genome, you have to do it in a place that you know is safe. Mm -hmm. And so there are different uh, loci in the genome, different kind of areas where, where we know that mutations in that area don't cause any problems. Mm. So one of those genes is a gene called CCR5. And the reason that we know that you can disrupt CCR5 is that, you know, with little consequence to people, is that there are people walking around on Earth that have two disrupted versions of this gene. What is CCR5? <laughs> CCR5 stands for chemokine receptor 5. Okay. And um, so it's a, it's a protein that's involved in kind of the movement of immune cells in the mm. body. Um, it has kind of, that's the general function. Um, and... It's because we know that people walk around with two big deletions in both of their copies wow. of this gene. We know that you can 
completely knock out the function of the gene and have, you know, a, a person that's pretty much fully healthy. Mm-hmm. There are a couple minor um, differences in their immune function that you can point to, but overall, they're perfectly healthy people. And, and so, and is that is that a rare to have a gene like that, or are there are many of them we just don't talk about it? It. So I would say if you're thinking about just the hematopoietic system, it's not that rare because mm-hmm. there are some genes in the genome that exist in blood cells, but the blood cells don't need them. I see. Um, so if you're only changing the gene in blood cells and the blood cells don't need the gene anyway, then it might not matter. Wow. So I think if you're talking about editing hematopoietic stem cells or blood stem cells, you yeah. could think of, an, of a number of different loci where this would be possible. CCR5 is simply a nice example because we have living proof that you can knock it out in, you know, in every cell in the body and the patient does fine. Got it. So it's safe to have a problematic CCR5, not only in the context of blood cells, but also in general. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So what is that safe harbor about? So you insert this cassette into CCR5? Exactly. So you disrupt the, C- you break the CCR5 gene into, you know, in half, essentially, into two pieces, and you shove inside that gap that you created a new chunk of DNA that you've That's defined. wild. That's wild. Yep. So CRISPR is, is nice because previously viruses can actually do this. Viruses can integrate into the genome, but you can't right. control where a virus integrates. So the utility of CRISPR largely has been to, uh, that we can define exactly at a base pair level, uh, you know, base by base, exactly where we will insert the cassette. And so mm-hmm. we can target these safe harbors and make sure that when we insert a new chunk of DNA, it's into one of these safe harbors and where we know there aren't going to be complications. Gotcha. And when you say like insert this cassette, what kind of things do you put on this cassette usually? So the very basic uh, elements of the cassette are a promoter. Mm -hmm. And that would go upstream of a gene that you want to express. And then you have to add in the the extra elements that are required for gene expression, like a signal that adds a poly A Mm. um, so that it can become mRNA and then be translated. So, it's essentially just a gene with the very basic regulatory elements needed to express that gene. Got it. And when CCR5's promoter comes in, then does your gene also turn on too, or you can't, you have a way to kind of decouple that? Um, so there, that's a good question. I'm not sure how well that's studied. I think that um, because you'd be inserting into the middle of the CCR5 gene, mm. if you got transcription of CCR5, it would you'd produce a nonsense protein because it would gotcha. get partway through the gene and then just... Um, you know, yeah, produce nonsense protein. But I don't think, I think that there are many regulatory mechanisms that are not fully understood. Sure. Um, that would probably limit the, the expression of CCR5 after it undergoes this disruption because I, I don't think people see any mm-hmm. abnormal gene products. Got it. And you say the mass lab come up, uh, contributed to this because maybe then is it because they showed that or you guys show that it's okay to, how, so how do you show, okay, I guess my question is, when you're pitching that insertion site to be CCR5, what do you compare it against? Like, what are your metric? Why do you, why is it better than putting in front, in the middle of CCR5 than others? How do you show that to somebody? It conceptually makes total sense, but yep. paper-wise, like, how do you show that? How do you show that uh, like, CCR5 is, is better than another location? Or? Yeah, I guess the x-axis would be like, yeah, maybe two groups, right? One is putting this cassette in CCR5, the other one is putting it in a random place with the virus or whatever. Okay. Then, yeah. Then what so, metric do you care the most? Why I would access? say um, the the big thing which you kind of measure clinically is that we know 
if you have insertion, random insertions, they can insert into oncogenes or, gotcha. or different areas that cause cancer. So mm. the big readout would be how many, how many incidences of cancer would you see? I see. I this? see. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Makes it's better. Sense. Yeah. So with CCR5 in theory and in, in practice, we don't see any types of abnormal growth of cells that look like cancer. Whereas in the past, um, with different types of integrating viruses, which often tend to integrate into genes that are actively transcribed, mm. Um, you will get, you can get these malignancies that arise because of the abnormal DNA and where it was inserted. And here, your research, when you talked about earlier how you just go fix one gene, when you say that, do you mean fixing one nucleotide of that gene or you have to do cutting that whole gene out and putting it, like, how, what is your definition of fixing a gene? Yeah, I can, so um, it's actually kind of both. So with, mm-hmm. with sickle cell disease, the approach has, you know, when there's, a known single base pair change. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it depends also, I guess, on what is ca- what exactly is causing the disease. Is gotcha. it that there's no gene product um, or if there is a gene product, but it's abnormal and, and it's the fact that it's there and that it's abnormal, that's a problem. So it depends a little bit on the context. Um, I can tell you that for some, some approaches have focused on trying to change a single base pair. With sickle cell disease, it's a single base pair. You can try to go in there and just change it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the diseases I focus on in my undergrad, which were a class of diseases called lysosomal storage diseases, the pathologies of these diseases is primarily driven by the deficiency or like total absence of activity of a, a lysosomal enzyme. So depending on the disease, it's a different enzyme, but all of these diseases have a mutation that's in present in both alleles. So it's a, it's a recessive, they're, they're recessive g- diseases, um, but they're missing a, an enzyme that typically operates in the lysosome. And so here you could try to change the, you know, a specific mutation, but the problem is that patients have all different types of mutations. It's not always the exact same mutation that causes the disease. It's Mm. just any mutation that knocks out the function of the protein. So if you were trying to take this to the clinic, you'd have to personalize it for every single patient, which Mm. is not an efficient way to do it. The better, a more efficient way to do it is just insert a new copy mm-hmm. somewhere else in the genome, like CCR5, because that would be the same approach for every patient, regardless of the type of mutation. Yeah, scalable. Exactly, scalable. <laughs> much A much uh, smarter approach. Yeah, Silicon yeah. Valley approach. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <That's> exactly <laughs> Your right. stack looks good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so that sounds good. So did you guys make that happen? Does it work so, now? Um, you know, there's a lot of proof of concept data. Um, it's not in the clinic in humans yet, although, you know, it's getting there. But uh, so what I worked on was essentially proof concept data for, for this approach um, for two different diseases. So the, the first one, which uh, was a, a paper published, you know, the first author paper by Natalia gomez Espino, who I mentioned before that I worked with, was a, a proof of concept for mucopolysaccharidosis type 1, also mm-hmm. known as Hurler's uh, disease. Um, and... I Is that also then, like loss of function disease? It can be any kind of yeah. a problem, any kind of mutation. But at the end, if you don't have that protein, you're messed up. Yes, exactly. Okay. So it's a, it's a lysosomal enzyme. It's deficient. And the approach is just to replace it in hematopoietic stem cells. Um, and basically, the, I, these studies that we worked on in the lab were, were focused on showing that if you edit, you know, first of all, that you can edit these cells um, with CRISPR and that you can edit them with a reasonably high efficiency. Um, you know, second that the, that these cells, once you've edited them, cause they're hematopoietic stem cells. So they're, they're blood stem cells. They're, they're a stem, you know, they're a type of cell that 
needs to retain a high level of functionality. Mm. So if you edit them, you have to show that these cells haven't changed in some important way that mm. um, that prevents them from performing their functions. Gotcha. So there's many in vitro experiments to show that they have retained their stem ability and that they can form gotcha. all the different types of blood lineages. And then the final um, phases of these studies were to transplant them into a mouse model mm-hmm. um, and show that long-term they can engraft in the bone marrow and persist. And then actually um, with Natalia's paper, she she also developed a mouse model of her disease and mm. showed that uh, that these edited cells could also impact the phenotype of the disease and help correct the phenotype of the disease. So you have to show three things. So one, you're saying you have to show that if you do this modification to a stem cell, that stem cell better act like stems afterwards, right? And then exactly. next, you have to make sure that you can just freeze it, save it, put it back, and then it works. And then third one is it fixes the disease. Is that? Is that yeah, essentially, I would say maybe, um, you know, one other one to add kind of at the very beginning is just mm-hmm. that you can edit the stem cells because it's not, not huh. all cell types are as amenable to being edited with CRISPR uh, see, as like other cell types. So you need to show that you can actually achieve high efficiency. And because if your efficiency is very low, therapeutically, uh, your product is going to have you know, it's going to be much less effective. So, so how come stem cells versus my, let's say, muscle cells, like how come they have different efficiency in terms of this edit? What makes them it's, different? You know, it's, it's not entirely well known. There are certain cell processes that we know contribute to the efficiency of editing. So I see. one of those is um, it, whether or not the cell is dividing because the, yeah, the way this, the machinery necessary to, because to, the, the editing process actually is a combination of this CRISPR system and then oh. the cell's own genetic repair machinery. Mm. Um, because you essentially, you make a break and you trick the cell into using its own genetic repair machinery to repair the break and in that repairing process, insert this new chunk of DNA. Mm-hmm. So you need that that repair machinery in the cell to be active. And mm. that repair machinery is typically most active when the cell is dividing. I see. Um, yeah, because when it's replicating its DNA, there are often times when it will replicate through um, a little break or some, you know, some, some other problem in the DNA that will cause it to, to actually mm-hmm. form a break while it's replicating and it needs a pro it needs a way to repair those breaks during replication. So it has this machinery active while it's replicating. Got it. So that's when it's most efficient. So actually must like cells, like muscle cells or cells that don't divide a lot, I mm-hmm. think are, my understanding is that they're much harder to edit because Got they it. just, um, they don't have that machinery is active yeah exactly so so then would you is it okay to think that um to see how genome editable a thing is a good like a direction to look at it is um uh the time it takes for them to replicate so more you replicate easier less you replicate more difficult is that a good access to look at that I think it's a, yeah, as a general correlation, yes. Okay. I don't think it's a, you know, necessarily a rule of just intuition. Uh, you know, the hard rule. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's um, generally, you know, good intuition. And that's seen similarly to with integrating viruses, kind of a common trend. Generally, active DNA that's open and being, you know, synthesized is much easier. It's much easier for genome editing proteins and viruses to get in there and, and change things. And if it's closed and more compact and stable, it's harder to do that. Okay, okay. And then for your research, you didn't work on the same disease that uh, Dr. Natalia worked on, right? Or So I um, began by sort of working alongside her mm-hmm. on that project. But as I became more independent, I also worked um, at kind of on a more primary project 
which was a similar proof of concept for a different lysosomal storage disease called Gaucher disease. I heard um, about so, that. By the way, before you say anything, that's amazing that you have your own like primary project like that. I don't think that's like common. Yeah, I like I, I kind of mentioned at the beginning, I think having Matt and Natalia as, as mentors was a really, really lucky yeah. uh, situation for me because they they just let me have a lot of independence. And that again, that's not something that you it's can amazing. often find, especially as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sets like the, tr- the, the trajectory for so many things that will come after, yep. just, you know, <laughs> having that project. Um, yep. So this, this, it's just something that I, I, I'm like, amazed when I hear people <laughs> I, when I see people who are good at what they do they all they have that kind of free project they leave they have like you know freedom to fail and do all these things and then you know they get just really good at what they do so yep I just I think that. I, honestly that freedom to fail one of the most important things because it's just it lets you actually get things done and yeah you'll yeah. you'll you might mess up more often because you took more risks but mm-hmm. you also succeed much more often because you took more risks so and then it gives you, you know, you gain confidence. Um, and it's something that translates toward every future project. It's, it's really yeah. a mindset that has to be learned. And I think having the opportunity to learn that in undergrad in a really great lab was just, again, like a really lucky experience for me. Yeah. And looking back, do you feel like amazed how um, that, that was so elusive? Like some small choices you would have made would probably never land you that primary project where you never ended up in that lab. You see how it's not yeah. like... It's kind of it feels like luck. the stars aligned. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it really does. Because I know, I know lots of other people personally that did not have nearly the same lab experience, and it yeah, it truly feels like the stars aligned for me somehow. <laughs> and I just and you worked hard too. I mean, you have to also work really yeah. hard with that opportunity. You know, you can't just sit sit sit, sit around with that opportunity. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely true. I think um, it's a combination. It's a combination yeah. of of there being that like the seeds of the opportunity, and then mm-hmm. and then you know feeling like, you know, being a person that's willing to take advantage of that and take sure. the risks because um, there were definitely some times where I was, where I doubted myself and kind of forced myself, I would say almost mm. to, to just almost like have almost fake it till you make it attitude, like force <laughs> myself to just like take those risks, even though I wasn't sure of myself. And that was something that was very important and just not some, not, there's not always opportunity to do that in labs because resources can be scarce and, you know, having an undergrad take charge of things yeah. can lead to, you know, you know, you're not as experienced as everyone else. And so people don't want to trust you as much, but yeah. So it was, I was really lucky in that lab in undergrad to have those experiences. That's amazing. Yeah. I, that's, that's just amazing. And then you worked on your primary project that focused on uh, this disease. Do, uh, was it yeah, called again? Gaucher disease. Gaucher, yeah. yeah. So it's another um, lysosomal storage disease. It's caused by a deficiency in the enzyme glucocerebrosidase. Okay. So it's just an enzyme that cleaves a glucose moiety off of this glycolipid glucose, which is called glucocerebroside. Mm-hmm. And so it separates glucose from the rest of the lipid backbone. And um, Why do I need that gene? So this glucocerebroside uh, glycolipid is present in cell membranes. It needs to be recycled. And if you don't have that gene, it will build up in the lysosome. And the buildup of that product in the lysosome causes a very serious genetic disorder, which is Gaucher disease. And this is a disease that it has uh, three different subtypes, depending on uh, how, whether or not there's a neurological involvement and then how extreme that neurological involvement is. Mm. So there's the type one, um, type one Gaucher disease has no neurological involvement. There's the best prognosis. Um, It's still not great, but the, it's a disease that affects children 
they'll live for a certain amount of time, um, depending on the type of treatment they receive. And they won't have any type of significant neurodegeneration, but there are other um, other really serious effects of the disease. And then there are two other subtypes, uh, type two, which is the most severe, and then type three, which is a little bit less severe, but those both have a, a pretty pro- uh, fast progressive neurodegeneration. Gotcha. Um, that's the most severe feature of the disease. And these three types are different clinically. I, I think mm-hmm. that's why there's three types. And molecularly speaking, is it because they have different uh, functioning capacity of lysosome or their broke their breaking is like uh, they have different mildness severe breaking mild breaking or soft breaking how, how should i question. think about that yeah so um there's a correlation that's not perfect so mm. the disease is actually really interesting in that there, there's not a perfect what we call genotype phenotype correlation so mm. just because you possess a certain mutation you know, that's been documented doesn't mean that you will, you can predict the, which subtype of the disease the patient will have. And there's even examples where twins, you know, oh, identical wow. twins don't actually have the same subtype. So there's, there's an interaction. I think it's believed there's, a, there's an interaction of, um, you know, this kind of the molecular defect with the environment, environmental and the environment, specifically the immune system and, and just what it's seen and, and how well it's trained and, and kind of just what the general immune system looks like in the patient. And that interaction really will um, then dictate the, the gotcha. phenotype because yeah, Gaucher disease is actually primarily also um, thought to be driven by macrophages mm. that uh, become really dysfunctional because this glycolipid, most cell types actually don't have a very high burden of degrading this glycolipid. I see. But macrophages, because they're phagocytic and they're responsible for clearing a lot of red blood cells, Makes have to sense. degrade a huge amount of it. So they're the, the cell type that's principally affected by this Makes deficiency. Sense. Yep. So a lot of the disease pathology is driven by what they're called Gaucher cells, which are the, the histologic hallmark of the disease. And they're just these lipid engorged uh, macrophages prevented or uh, present in tissues yeah. and that are correlated with massive inflammation in the tissues and all these, these different problems. By the way, so. The, um, the Mark Davis lab, one of the <laughs> papers that I had to read was a twin study and then sh- showing that the difference between how macrophages, immune cells behave, I'm sure you read it too, is like mainly uh, environmental. So that goes with yeah. what you said. So now like things are aligning. And we also see bu- like macrophages, like, you know, fatty, oh, yeah. fat macrophages everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the immune system is really, really complicated and we're... Um, you know, increasingly seeing that the environment plays a huge role in, in why it's different between different people. In addition to genetics, it's a, it's a really interesting interaction. Of course, the Davis lab studies that, you know, in depth. Yeah. yeah. Well, later I'm going to ask you about the rotation experiences. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but anyways, go back to your research. Okay. So you have this yeah. disease, you have three types and you boom, you're starting your own project. Yeah. So yeah, the, I think and the then pan- global pandemics coming in a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that yet. Actually, it's a funny story because we, we pretty much finished some last final experiments. Um, yeah. actually my first year at Stanford for when we were trying to publish it. And, um, it was, we barely made it before everything shut down for mm. COVID. Like that was another fortunate, <laughs> uh, the reviewers tell you, Hey, repeat. Yeah, this. It, oh, we would have been, luckily it was, that was after the review. So this is our oh, recent wow. mission. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I worked, you know, throughout my undergrad on editing this, you know, trying to get a high efficiency editing of these stem cells, showing that in vitro, they recapitulated all of the functions of normal hematopoietic stem cells. 
I did say, a lot when of. Say, when you say editing here, do you talk? Do you mean specific single? You have a cell line or patient stem cell comes in. You look at it. You see a nucleotide that's A or B or some different places. Do you specifically go after each sample, or do you do what you just said, like bring the right gene, put it in the CCR5 or it's the others? The latter. So we, okay. I was my. My project focused on yeah the the approach because Gaucher is similar in that there's a lot of different mutations right. that cause the disease. There's too many. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the the smartest approach is just to insert a new copy of the gene. Um, that being said, there most of type one. So Gaucher, there's type one Gaucher disease. That is the one where there's actually a pretty high correlation between mm-hmm. um, genotype and phenotype, and and most patients actually like there's a most common genotype, which is this N. 371S, I believe, if I'm mm-hmm. remembering correctly, that mutation is very, very common among type one. So you mm-hmm. could imagine trying to fix that mutation and you know, as a therapy for a big chunk of the diseases, but gotcha. um, there's a number of reasons that it ended up being hard to do that. One of which is um, there's a what's called a pseudogene. So GBA1 is the name of the gene that's defective, um, which codes for glucocerebrositis. Um, and there's a, there's a pseudogene, which means there's, there's a gene, like a, a fake copy of this gene very close by that is highly homologous. And when you have that situation, trying to edit the gene can be very tricky. Um, so basically so you're saying easier. that, yeah, there's like decoy out there. So the efficiency is like, at least, I mean, mathematically yeah. half, you know, half. And then there could be, um, if you cut twice at the same time, you can delete a huge chunk of the gotcha. genome. There's many problems you can imagine occurring. So Going after CCR5, where we know we're going to insert, you know, at a very specific place, a whole new copy of the gene, it's a much easier approach. Um, and then we were actually, for all these proof of concept studies, um, there aren't enough patients to be working on patient hematopoietic stem cells. So we we get um, just regular, healthy hematopoietic stem mm. cells from, uh, th- there was a, like a program that would consent um like mothers that had just given birth at the hospital to donate their cord blood. Mm-hmm. And then people would process that and we would get these um, totally fresh blood stem cells to play with in the lab. Um, gotcha. So you can just then do experiments on those. And like how, what was hard about, so it sounds easy, but it's really difficult. Right? You have to get this gene, the right uh, functioning copy. Where do you get that from before you insert it into a broken one? I see. So like where, what, sequence do we use yeah. to so um do you just like, like the databases or do you have to get it from an animal yeah. no you get it um pretty much from databases uh i guess i inherited you know the already i guess physical copy of the gene but you use what's called the cdna mm. which is just you know instead of the a gene that looks exactly like the gene that would exist in you know the normal genome the endogenous genes what we call that which has all these intron pieces that are going to be cut out. We just mm-hmm. we use this final version where we don't have to cut out any introns oh. or anything. It's much smaller because the size of the, the cassette that you insert is actually very important for efficiency. Like the God. larger it is, the harder, the lower the efficiency of the editing. So you want to make, you want to kind of compress everything as much as possible. And then um, a common approach is to codon optimize as well. Mm, what's uh, that? You pick the best so, codons? Exactly. So different, um, it's believed that the, relative abundance of tRNAs in a cell will make some codons just easier, quote unquote, or faster to, to translate. And therefore, you can get more protein if you pick the best codons that have the most abundant associated sense. tRNAs. Makes sense. So, yeah. I, wonder, um, and I, I can already imagine like a field that's just about like how to make this like compressed representation of a gene. 
Yeah. There has to be people who do just that, right? Like saying, hey, this is a gene with five exons and you've got to remove the codons. And, but keep that intron or like it's an art almost. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes actually keeping an intron can be important for the, the transcription of the gene too. I think, I believe that's the case for um, hemoglobin's A subunits. <laughs> so there's actually, uh, sometimes it's, or like maybe it's the different regulatory elements can sometimes be very important to keep in so yeah it's wow. it's not always trivial even designing the gene that you're going to insert so that's one reason you have to do all this testing is that once you've designed something you need to show that once it's in the cell it's you know you're actually seeing transcription of yeah. the cassette um and that it's working like you designed it to work and and so there's a lot of little kind of intermediate steps you have to go through to do this proof these proof of concept studies um and then just getting these these reagents is actually I mean, nowadays we take it for granted, but a mm -hmm. big part of what Matt worked on before starting his own lab was showing or was even developing a system where you could achieve this type of editing I'm speaking of, which is what we call homology-directed repair. Mm -hmm. So often CRISPR is used to knock out a gene. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's much easier because the, you just you know take this CRISPR system and it's going to cut somewhere in the genome and you tell it where to cut. And after it cuts, if it cuts enough times it will create a mutation and after there's a mutation it can't target the same spot anymore so it'll stop cutting but you create a mutation and that's pretty pretty easy to do much harder to do is to cut and then like i said trick the cell into repairing the dna the way that you want it to be repaired and so like as a general overview the re the way that we do this is we have to at the same time that we deliver a crispr to the cell we have to actually deliver a and um, we call an AAV virus, an adeno-associated virus. And this is a virus that will infect the cell and release its genome into the cell. And, and this genome will get to the nucleus. And this genome we have engineered. And so it's, it's kind of the backbone of an AAV genome so mm -hmm. that it can be packaged in an AAV particle. But the, the middle of this genome is our cassette. Mm -hmm. And on either side of the cassette are these regions of homology to the cell's genome, kind of on either side of where we want to insert the chunk mm -hmm. of DNA. And this homology is what tricks the cell into kind of inserting, in its repair process, inserting the DNA we want it to insert. So it, it sees that like these two sides match up and it will actually use that AAV genome as a template mm -hmm. to repair the break um, in the genome. So the CRISPR cuts makes a break and then this genome, this AAV genome floating around will have these areas that match either side of the break and then the cell will see that and will use that AAV genome to then repair the break. And in the process of doing so, it will insert all this new DNA into the middle. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So, yeah, that whole system is, it took a long time for that to be developed and um, it to be also to achieve any sort of reasonable efficiency with it. So that was all kind of a system that I inherited and that, you know, I didn't have to work for, but mm -hmm. I did have to show that it could be done with my gene mm -hmm. um, in these somatopoietic stem cells. And your gene is here, is the cDNA for that GB1. C, exactly. cDNA for GBA1. Okay, did you keep any introns or is just... Nope. No okay. introns were kept. Um, and then you can also, so another aspect of my project was testing on different promoters because mm -hmm. different, depending on the promoter, um, you can get different effects. So you can imagine driving very high expression of a gene mm -hmm. or kind of intermediate expression or low yeah, yeah, expression. Yeah. And that could have a different outcome. And actually driving really high expression of a gene could hurt a cell. And when you're talking about hematopoietic stem cells where, you know, they have this very important stem cell function that must be maintained. If you, you know, mess up its proteome by driving high levels of a gene, that could affect its function as a stem yeah. cell. 
And so and, um, a sort of a really important aspect of my project was actually to test a promoter called CD68. It was a, a truncated version of CD68. But CD68 is a gene. So it was the promoter for CD68 that I was testing. But this promoter for CD68 is something that, or is a promoter that's known or at least um, shown in experiments to be primarily expressed in macrophages. And so I mentioned before that macrophages are, are one of the cell types that drive yeah, the pathology yeah. of Gaucher disease. So our thought was that if we could actually only have this gene, this, you know, this different copy of GBA be expressed wow. in macrophages and not in the stem cells, then that would be optimal because we wouldn't perturb the, the stem cell proteome, yeah. but we would have expression later on in macrophages. So basically so what you're saying is like not only the amount of transcription you have to control, but also who transcribes it, you can control that. Exactly. The cell type and the level. And so I did a lot of work showing that I could get pretty specific expression in macrophages wow. um, and limited expression in the actual stem cell population, Wow, which we thought would help um, the, the function of the stem cells. Wow. And normally if you look at tissue specific expression um, for a normal person, Macrophages, I guess, express GB1 higher than normal too. Than yeah, so they're, yeah, like a, so they're like a cell that needs to actually degrade a lot of this, this GBA1 um, or this these glucose rubricides. So they need to express more or they at least rely more on the expression of GBA1 for their And function. in your project, like what was the hardest part? Like if that didn't work out, yeah. you, you have quit probably, you know, the hardest part. <laughs> The hardest part was definitely doing these, uh, the in vivo mouse studies because- Why was it uh, hard? So like even just the, even the technical skills to start the experiments were hard. So we had to actually give these tiny mice because they'd be, you know, they're mice. So they're, they're small to begin with, NSG mice. And then at six weeks right after they're born, um, we would have to give them like a bone marrow transplant, which is a very difficult thing to do. And it involves- being it, like skilled enough with a, a syringe and, and you, well, first of all, you have to anesthetize the mouse. So you're working in like basically doing mouse surgery um, with this wow. mouse, it's anesthetized, you have to kind of shave its leg and then it has a tiny little femur and you have to use a syringe to actually perfectly go through, like into the cavity of the yeah. femur to inject your cells. Why, why, why just femur? Like don't you have to take from everywhere? Like spine? So if you... If you inject into the femur, you actually will see that these stem cells have a migrating capacity and they can home, what they call it, they home oh. to the bone marrow niche. So if you if you inject them, people can even inject them IV um, and they will actually home to the bone marrow. So even if you inject in just one leg, you will actually eventually see them spread. So oh. in order to just get them in the mouse, you only really need to inject them, uh, you know, either IV or what I did, which was intrafemorally. And actually, the other thing I did was if you if you really you know, you can really time well your experiments. Mm -hmm. You can get the mouse pups right as they're born and inject them into the liver because the they wow. will migrate from the liver to the bone marrow. Um, and so that is actually a much easier way to do it. But if you haven't timed your editing mm -hmm. with your mouse, kind Growing. of uh, exactly like it just sometimes mm -hmm. it doesn't work out. So it's a mix of doing both methods. And do you have to also get rid of the uh, default bone marrow as well with the radiation and all that or? Yeah, you do. So yes, you have to irradiate the mice first. Yeah. Oh my So you irradiate the mice, uh, kill off their bone marrow. And then within, I think within like 12 or 24 hours, something like that, you need to give them human bone marrow so that uh, otherwise they'll die because they won't have any, you know, <laughs> the, the, their bone so. marrow will fail. So. Poor um, mice. 
Yeah. And it clears out some space for the human cells as well. It's important to have like what we call kind of these empty spots in the bone marrow Mm -hmm. or like these, these niches for the new stem cells to come in and populate. Because if there isn't any like clearing of these niches, it's very hard for the stem cells to graft. Makes sense. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of like work. Yes. So that was a lot of work. And not only, not only that, a lot of it, um, this, the sorting involved sometimes, if you're trying to make a very pure cell product that you inject, mm-hmm. you will also have to use these what are called fluorescence activated cell sorters to actually sort your edited cells first, which is also a, a, just a, a time-consuming and stressful process. So do, performing these experiments and setting them up um, was a lot of work and had wow. to be timed very well. And you know, it's also as an undergrad student, like I didn't always have yeah. like, an open schedule. So there were definitely some stressful times doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in order to get any useful data at the end, you had to have cells that engraft. And sometimes, like I said, like if I didn't perform the transplant well or something, mm. I might not have seen much engraftment. That that was simply because I just didn't perform that technical aspect well. And so I had to wait, you know, eight months to read out this data wow. because that's the gold standard in the field for, for really showing long-term function of these cells. Wow. So yeah, after eight months opening up these mice and getting these cells back was also, which is also a lot of work in itself. Um, there's just a lot of pressure because you really hope to see good yeah. data after all this work. And you, and you stayed, I would have left. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I, I think it was a combination. You of, could have uh, just left, you know, somebody else take your project that happens often. Yeah. That's, you know, that's true. But I, I liked, I was inspired by, uh, you know, what we were trying to do. I was inspired by the end goal of the pro, even though it was hard, I was inspired by the end goal. Um, and I liked my mentors and that was definitely enough to get me to stay. And now, like, you know, I kind of mentioned that I'm doing something different. That experience definitely influenced how I think about, you know, my plans for my PhD. Yeah. <laughs> um, wait, wait, but- wait a second. Before you talk about now, like during when you were doing that project, right? Like, what were some of the growth that you've you experienced now looking back? I'm sure technologically, yeah, your skills get better, right? And what were some other, like, aspects of growth that you you, you feel right now look back? Like, yeah, probably the, the one that's, you know, most kind of at the, at the front of my mind when I think of, of growth, which I've already touched on, is just this ability to take risks in the lab. Because I okay. think, yeah, I think as a student, one of the biggest obstacles to students is just feeling this, this inhibition or yeah, feeling inhibited because you don't have a lot of self-confidence in new techniques and what you're doing. And one thing that I had to do was just honestly learn on my own sometimes and and Mm. use like the internet and these resources to just understand what I was doing Mm -hmm. and then have the confidence to take it forward. Um, so that was a, like a huge thing, just feeling like I could actually operate like a, like I knew enough and yeah. like I could operate like an independent scientist. Yeah. Um, because otherwise these experiments never would have gotten done. You right, know, right, I, right. Was, I was going to do them and they were not going to be done. And so I, like I said, I was lucky to have the, you know, the freedom to actually take that risk because not everyone mm-hmm. would have, you know, not every lab would be supportive of that, but mm-hmm. I did, I did have that freedom. And so I definitely just learned how to, how to be independent and how to become independent when mm-hmm. you're in a new area where you, you don't, necessarily know what you're doing at first mm-hmm. yeah so that's kind of like one of the biggest things and what were um, some of the things that you got it wrong like I, before this process you probably thought like okay 
I'm going to do this. This is how the science works. And then later now looking back, you're like, uh-uh, silly Sam. That's not how it's going to work. You'll know in four years. Like, oh, what are some yeah. of those, those things? Well, you know, there's definitely some like learning, learning moments or teaching moments, I suppose, where, um, you know, I, I just would, I mess some things up. Like I, I think you, you have a plan for how you think the experiments are going to unfold and you can even make these little like fake figures for like how exactly the data is going to look and you can imagine it all in your head. And it just does not play out that way. And um, one example is I, uh, I had, I was actually testing three different promoters initially. And this, the, the last one, which didn't end up being included in my paper, I did a lot of work for, but it turns out that um, I hadn't checked at some point the sequence of a, a, a DNA construct or what we call plasmid. Um, and it had somehow in some process recombined it, a chunk of it had been deleted and mm. it, I did all these experiments and they, they weren't working and I couldn't figure out why. And eventually after a lot of time and energy and money, we figured out that like this chunk had been deleted and I just felt like, Oh my God, so much. Like it was just, it's a simple thing. You're always supposed to do it. You're supposed to check and sequence your plasmids. And I think I cut a corner somewhere or it was early on. I just didn't, you know, know as much about what I was doing. And I, this, whole problem kind of unfolded and that probably sticks out in my mind as one of the biggest um teaching moments and kind of i guess quote-unquote failures <laughs> that i experienced. check your assumptions yeah exactly yeah. um and then the other thing is like there's a big gap between mm -hmm. the lab and the clinic and even a proof of concept experiment that's done in vivo in like a mouse is there's so many other kind of obstacles and steps that need to be overcome or taken um, before these things get into the clinic. And I think that was something I didn't realize at the beginning. I thought like, I was like, it, it, I felt so close to the clinic. Yeah. 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 I know how you feel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so my eyes were really opened up kind of hearing other people speak and watching, you know, different projects in the lab kind of progress at different stages. It just made me realize how hard it is to get these types of things into the clinic, right. into patients to actually make a difference. And then that again, like gave me, you know, really instilled in me a lot of respect for people like Matt and Natalia that work so hard to try, you know, I just persistently with this vision to get it into the clinic because it's super hard. It's, it's not easy at all. And it would be really easy to end at the publication stage and to walk away with your nature paper and kind of, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I'm done kind of thing with that. Exactly. Yeah. But that's, that's not the goal of this, of, of Matt's lab. And that's, that's not his ultimate goal. And I, I think that was something I realized and was really inspiring to me. Yeah, it also shows that that kind of stuff's like, not for some people like me. Like, there's no way. Yeah. Like, it's just, just like yeah. as you learn more, you just know that okay, there's a lot to do with personality. Like, yeah, you know, you, that, and you it, also it, realize like different papers, there are different types of science have very yeah. different timelines, right? And they're yeah, different they're, time investments. And yeah, that was so. One thing I realized was just the amount of work that went into like Natalia's paper with her making this mouse model, and this, it was just comparing that to like. Just other types of science where, you know, maybe more computational things or things that you can just do a lot quicker. It's just, it's a totally different world. And like, you just can't even equate them. Um, so I realized that that type of science is very hard and time consuming. But that, and, but that kind of science is like the, the real, you know, like what you were talking about, what you guys do. That's what finds, I think, more new knowledge, like more truth in the world and uh, has a long lasting impact. There's yeah. So many computational work that are all garbage but high impact 
the garbage, yeah. you know, they're just, you know, new algorithm, this and they're all garbage. And they find no <laughs> truth, all the hypothesis, nobody's going to test. You just wasted time, have fun, you know? Um, yeah. So, so yeah, you know, when I, when I been mad, that's what I told him. I just, I said, Hey, you know, um, I feel like, you know, what you guys are doing is real science and all this <laughs> stuff is just garbage. Not garbage, yeah, but you, mean, see, you see my point. Like, there's difference mm -hmm. between like what goes into selling it and what it is. There's a huge discrepancy. I feel like that discrepancy is not okay for a lot of computational work. But for what you do, I think it's the the other way around. Where that mice that you waited eight months, that thing might have huge implications for ever in human, you know, history compared to you know what I'm saying. Like, it's, but you're not selling yeah. it like that. Yeah, definitely. Um... The, I, I would say like one of the, the best parts about that kind of work, even though it's a, a lot of, it is a lot of work and maybe you're not thinking at like the molecular level as often as you'd like to be, but you do have this very real, yeah. like yeah. practical readout, which is like your cells were in a living thing and they survived and they like made blood cells and you, you can't make that up. That doesn't happen exactly. by accident. Exactly. I think that's nice to see data that, you know, can't happen by accident. Um, that's, it's really nice. It's just, it's so believable. I think sometimes my, my struggle with a lot of computational stuff is just, it's, you don't get the same feeling of, of just seeing what you know has to be true. I think there's often a lot of ways to slice data and, um, especially with really, really high dimensional computational things. Not that there's like, you know, it's necessarily bad data or anything. It's just, it's harder for a human mind, I think, to really grasp what's like profound about it. Like you can, a computer will spit out some correlations or a little cluster something or like it, but it's not the same as seeing there's you know, nothing, stem cells. There's like, nothing profound there. There's, yeah. there's literally <laughs> nothing profound there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I think it's, um, it is, it does take a lot of work, that type of science, but there's, it's high reward, high work, high reward. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. So I feel like, you know, I met this person. I mean, I, I see a lot of successful um, scientists and the new generation of very successful PIs, they can make their own hypothesis and they have a way to test it. They have that arm of the lab that can do the experiment. And I think you have to have that if you wanna do a science. You gotta be, yeah. true science I feel like has to come from experimental side in some way. You can, yeah, you can have a theoretical physicist and theoretical chemistry. I guess bioinformatics is also theoretical, right? In a lot of ways, that computational yeah. biology, you make theories. Those are great. Those are more philosophy based stuff, right? But then to kind of get to the truth, to, you know, step forward, that engine is experiment. Yep. Yeah. And I think especially in biology, just because it should work does not mean it will work. Exactly. Um, you know, like you said, like you can have these theories and these models, but it, it's so complicated and we're never modeling even close to all of the factors that are there that you just never know what thing you haven't thought of that's going to completely change the outcome. And so yeah. you, I think at the end of the day, you're right. You have to do the experiment. You have to see that in real life, it works out the way that you thought it would, because that's the only real life is the only way to take into account all the real life variables. Yeah. Um, we don't have that power yet. I think computationally. So. And after learning that, right. Like my, my, also I have a good, uh, good mentor who's, who's also good at this too. I really value like getting to know experimentalists and scientists so that like you, you make buddies with them, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hey, can you, uh, you mind doing this for me? Check this out. Yeah. Because then you yeah. understand their work, you propose something and you help them, you assist them as much as you can. And yep. then um, anyways, so what kind of research do you do now? 
So um, I haven't officially joined a PhD lab, but okay. um, I'm leaning toward one that will be focusing on really basic lysosome biology. So one thing I really wanted in my research going forward, or at least to experience, was more um, kind of more basic science. So like yeah. I, I just I described a lot of working on developing this like tr- like engineering approach, and it was kind yeah. of translational. And then I decided that all right, I want to just work on trying to understand a system just like contribute some new knowledge about a system. Um, and also I wanted to, to be a little closer to my chemistry background. So okay. I, I was actually first a chemistry major. I added on biology later, mostly so that I could do my honors thesis in the Porteous lab. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved thinking about chemistry and I always missed being able to think about it more in my research. And so I wanted mm-hmm. to do something a little bit more, maybe closer to like what I think of as the biochemistry um, kind of frontier. So I'm in a lab. Or I will, I'm thinking about joining a lab that studies basic lysosome biology and it's in the ChemH building. And this building is really designed to support collaboration and interdisciplinary work in chemistry and biology, Wait, where as well like, as like engineering. In terms of LK? It is a, it's a cross from campus drive, a cross campus drive from LK. That's the so new building look, then? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's really, yeah. Very nice. Um, and it's got, it's like the, these contiguous lab spaces where you could do anything chemistry and like biology that you could possibly want. And wow. that's is something rare. So actually one thing that I, I lacked in the Portis lab was any access to chemistry tools, which did at one point affect my research. So I had to actually kind of make buddies with someone in a chem lab so I could go there and, <laughs> um, and do some stuff because we just didn't have like the equipment because like the stem cell building is just, there's almost never a time when you really need like hardcore chemistry equipment, but it was like this <laughs> one enzyme acid that I needed. It was like abnormal and I needed this stuff. So what's cool about ChemH is that it has all of this, all of the stuff you could ever want that spans like biology through, uh, or chemistry through biology. And so it's cool to have all of that together in one space. Um, and all of the expertise there as well. And there's also some like engineering aspects to yeah. ChemH. Um, yeah. So you got a new building. Congratulations. Back. Yes. It's, it's so really nice. nice. New building. Yep. So nice. Mm-hmm. And you want to learn, you just basically you went deeper. I think yeah. a part of you had always questions about lysosome and all these things. And you just, but you know what? I'm going to be sad for four years anyways. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to go deep. Yeah. You know, honestly, I, I think that's true. I think there were moments <laughs> when I was in the 40s lab where I, there's sometimes where you have questions, you know, you're taking this approach and you think yeah. there's all these side questions and you're like, exactly. I just do not have time to even think about these side questions. And now this is a chance for me to kind of say, Oh, maybe I, I can really just see how deep I can go into one of these questions. And so actually one, um, so Natalia and, and the PI that I'm thinking about, um, whose lab drawing may have a collaboration related to, um, the, like a, a disease caused by deficiency of progranulin, which is like another kind of life. Mm-hmm. It's not an enzyme necessarily. Like mm-hmm. the function is well known, but um, that would be like a, a project where I would really be trying to understand more how this lysosome dysfunction leads to neurodegeneration. Because gotcha, there's actually, gotcha. it's a very common theme that lysosome dysfunction leads to neurodegeneration. You see it in like Parkinson's and like I see. Alzheimer's. And so there's this big hypothesis, like lysosome and neurodegeneration, they're somehow really linked. And people have, have all these hypotheses floating around, but there's not really been a, no one's really flushed it out fully. So this is a definitely an area of active research. Gotcha. And, um, and this is like a, a kind of a perfect lab to look at, at that in and, and have access to. I think it's nice. Things. I, I think yeah. that's a really cool track because it's very general and it's, it has a huge real estate. Like 
it's a disease of like not being able to get rid of the waste, right? Pretty much. Yeah. And that's huge umbrella. Like cancer is a disease of like this, you know, huge umbrella too. But isosomal disease is also a huge umbrella. And yep. cool thing about that, I think, is if it's true that the blood cells, right, are responsible for doing lots of this cleaning up, then like you have this one, two, three, you know, the combination of getting to the clinic because that's the background, right? Like transplant, genome editing, put the new one yeah. in. Right. No, that's a, I think there's such a, a good, like, yeah. diseases that you can think of, or yeah, there's, there's many diseases, neurodegenerative, where if you could somehow fix the lysosomes or, yeah. you know, that's, it's a big step forward. Or even if you can modulate them, not with genome edit necessarily, but even small molecule inhibitors or, or things, but kind of that have a focus on, on lysosome biology or pathology, then yeah. Um, yeah, you can impact a lot of, of really bad, really terrible diseases. So, you know, that would be the goal ultimately there are times in life you see people with talent work ethic and then the you know and then they're like uh their focus aligns and you get excited for their future and i felt that right now i'm serious <laughs> oh that's good because you have and you have a way to end it like there's a it's not like cancer right i guess immunotherapy is coming and all that stuff but you actually have a way to close it like abc right always be closing yeah it's just That's now, true. One thing about cancer is that you know it's an inevitable thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like kind you have the smartest minds working on cancer. You're like, wow, okay. Yeah, you know, the longer here, we live, the more cancer. Yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful, but uh, but still, like, what if you, you know, treat it really well. Yeah. But you know, like, yeah. Art, yeah, arthritis is one of those things. Like you're like, okay, good luck, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um. Well, I have a bad knee, so I can say that and, <laughs> and laugh about it. I'm just sad about arthritis field. Like just nothing. Mm. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, I, you... I think another big frontier, honestly, like the they've been working on autoimmune, like immunotherapies for autoimmune diseases, kind of almost like the opposite of of cancer yeah. stuff. Um, obviously, it's a little younger, but yeah, yeah, fifty years, thirty years. Yeah, Something but like for you, you have the end. You have you have the you have the closing thing. Now it's just creating that general theory of lysosomes that explains a bunch of diseases. And then you yeah, just, it would be nice. I'm excited for you. I'm super, super excited, actually. <laughs> good. Thank you. Me too. You're getting me psyched too. <laughs> no, that's a good, like, I just think that's a, such a good trajectory. You've done the end part, C part. And now you went deep. You're going to lysosome deeper in a chemistry background. You're at a place with new building. I'm just telling you all the things aligning. You're at a world-class top institution. You're about to be done with your research. And then, like, wow, it's like, Good for you, you know? Yeah, it's, it's exciting times. Hopefully coronavirus will end and we can kind of actually get back to the lab. <laughs> yeah, that's um, good for you. Yeah, no, it's true. I think a, a lot of the, the steps have kind of aligned for me, which is nice. And um, What's missing? Let's think about what's missing in your step. Like, I guess you need a great computational collaborist. Ooh. <laughs> I wonder if you have a classmate. I need a podcast to go viral. <laughs> 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 yeah so I, I actually have no single author like sing, i don't have a, any single author publication and i don't like writing and i have no interest in publication i just help people do the analysis and they put me in their paper i actually make figures and stuff but then you know that's it i yeah, just collaborate a, that can be a great way not being too tied to the publication game i think is honestly a good thing yeah like i really don't care. i mean i, I should care but politics there it's just, yeah and writing come on i'm not good at writing yeah honestly oh the amount of time it took writing was was how was it how was yours did you feel like writing was so much work that you expected I, it was a lot i i was lucky in that um 
so this paper ended up being Natalia's first like PI. Like she was like the corresponding author and mm-hmm. she was very invested in it. And I was lucky because she was very invested in it. And so, so she, she writes a lot. Also and, spent a lot yeah. of time. Yeah, I think um in a bigger lab as a grad student, you might be completely on your own and you'd bear the whole burden. But I was lucky to have a lot of I mean, yeah, she wrote an enormous amount of it. Um it's kind of dependent, like there were certain parts, especially the ones that were more like clinically focused because like a big part of this paper was this outlook clinically and mm. I didn't feel like as an undergrad I could really like I didn't know the field yeah. I didn't know who I should be citing on the clinical things and so like a lot of that you know she's an MD/PhD and a specialist in that area it was like her domain for sure for sure um but I definitely made a lot of figures and organizing data is also like oh my goodness yeah and there's you look back I think uh being organized as a scientist not easy but so so important and something right. that I think um, yeah, like I, I look, I would, there were just days where I would be, I would thank like myself from two years ago for just taking like those extra 20 minutes, to just make things organized and make sense because going back years is so hard. And I, I don't think it's taught like, it's not taught anywhere that well. No, no, I think it's really easy to just let it all escape you and never really be really good about recording things and think, Oh yeah, I'll just like remember what I was doing. And yeah. it's just, it's actually very hard. So yeah, getting organized was a lot. And I think for you, like, I don't know, but you, since you were doing so many things like undergrad, pre-med, exams, climbing, yeah. all these things, you have to be organized. Otherwise, your life's going to collapse. Yep. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> felt like it was about to collapse at certain points. <laughs> yeah, and then that kind of helps you learn that skill, you know? Yeah. So I feel like... Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I'm still yeah. learning it, though. Med school is also a lot sometimes. <laughs> By the way, how is your med school experience so far? Ah, you know, it's been good. Um, it's actually different than I thought it would be. I have to say, I think, I think coming from a science background, um, med school has felt at times very unscientific. Yeah. <laughs> and that has been a weird feeling because I think we often think of medicine. Medicine is, is science. It's based in science. But actually, I think you start to realize that at a high level, it's based in science, but then you get to this, when it comes down to making decisions, they're not always perfect, perfectly logical decisions. Sometimes you just make you know, it's like a gut feeling or you can't make a perfect decision and you're using reasoning that's not perfect. And I think yeah. getting used to that is a little bit hard. It's a wicked um, problem. And then, yeah. And I'm also used to like being taught science that we know. Like mm-hmm. in my, when I studied biology, I was, I learned the biology because we, we had, we knew that biology. And the hard thing about medicine is that you're responsible for diseases that we know nothing about. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's a little bit more of this kind of memorizing game where you can't understand the pathophysiology yeah. from the bottom up. It's, it's a lot more of this fuzzy understanding. And that has been hard for me, honestly, but the fuzzy understanding, I don't like having only a fuzzy understanding of things. And sometimes that's just because that's all we know. Um, yeah. So it's hard. It, 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 hard. it is pretty hard. Like the amount of stuff you have to learn is super yeah. hard. Yeah. I think some, also the historic, there are historic reasons we do certain things or classify things yeah. certain ways that don't make sense now that we know more about these diseases, but they're still in place because historically that's how it was taught. And so sometimes it feels like actively not like illogical things yeah. are being taught. And I think getting over that is also um, I mean, Wagner's disease. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the way things are, are named and then classified, I think sometimes um, the categories things are broken up into don't, make sense anymore like oh they're initially classified because of the way they looked or something and then now we know that these things are totally separate and unrelated entities but you know what you i know, like I, I like idiopathic diseases 
Uh, yeah, I think idiopathic has become synonymous with like immune. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like something is damaging this, probably the immune system. We don't really know, but I agree. Yeah. It, so but, now, like, what does your future plan look like? Do you want to take your step soon, next year? Um, that's a good question. I think probably early next year, because that's when it's going to be pass fail. I have to say, I think, I, I think there's a lot of this playing the game of trying to get a really high score on step. Yeah. And that involves a lot of memorizing for a very short amount of time, Waste a lot very of stuff. obscure things yeah, yeah. And I, that I really truly don't believe will have any impact. And, I, and this is why they're making a pass fail because they've seen this has no impact, but it will have yeah. no impact on your care for patients. And it's a lot of time spent away from the lab and, yeah. and sort of working. I think I'm especially against investing time that feels useless when investing that time takes away from time in other areas that are definitely meaningful. Sure. Opportunity costs. Exactly. Like, yeah. I just think um, that's just not a good game to play and so i think I that if i can push it off a little bit to when it's pass fail i probably will do that although i haven't decided for sure but yeah. um i also haven't really been studying for it at all yet so by the way i am so, I, I was shocked to figure out that some people were already studying for it like i was just oh, yeah, shocked people studying from the beginning like with anki and stuff Dude, i was shocked <laughs> you have no yeah, idea I'm not- <laughs> I honestly like stressed about it last year at some point when I knew when I knew some people were and I still couldn't make myself be on a schedule. It's just it. How do you how, like things, it's hard. I, that's just so hard. I respect yeah. like, people's like work ethic. To, I, there's no way I have time to do that. Yeah. No, I think it's again, it's like the opportunity cost thing. I think I always just it just never felt like it outweighed other things that I wanted to do. And I feel like. I didn't. I also don't love the the approach of memorizing stuff in Anki. Yeah, I, I don't have Anki. Yeah, I don't really use yeah. it. I think maybe for like very specific topics that are there's no way to learn other memorizing. Maybe I will do that. But it, it's the interface problem. Anki application is garbage. Oh, it is garbage. How it's has inter- no one improved it? I, I look. Give me a couple of days. Like <laughs> like oh look. It's really not hard to make that garbage, right? Like it's so easy to make that crap. And they oh, make yeah. it so hard and it's just like garbage. But the problem is yeah. so many people are using it now that like making anything else is, you're not going to get anything. Like nobody's yeah. going to pay you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It is garbage. Right? Like some people can go through that and find things easy, but it's hard. Yeah. But I'm sure somebody's making a lot of money off of our Anki, like a mouth. Um, yeah. 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 Probably. And then do you want to do more science or clinical stuff? I mean, definitely science. I think that, and I think most gotcha. MD PhDs feel this a similar way. I definitely think having a connection to the clinic is really important um, because I think one, understanding patient needs is important, and then two, just understanding what, like, how you treat patients and what you can mm. put in a patient. Like, I think in order to develop effective therapeutics, because like my, I guess, like ultimate broad goal is like I want to be involved. I want to contribute something to science and I prefer that that thing also kind of had an impact on, on patients sure. in some way. And I think that process of, you know, identifying a, a niche or a niche and like working in it and then being able to like, you know, make it your own and, and then have something come out of that that could impact patients is kind of like, you know, a vision I have mm-hmm. that I hope for my career. And I think getting something into the clinic requires understanding how you actually do that and like what yeah. you can put in patients, how you treat patients 
and how you deal like with the FDA and things like that. Sure. And so um, I do want to have some clinical work, but I, I feel like the biggest impact I can make is in the development of new therapeutics. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, you know, there's only so much you can do for patients with what we have now. But and I think that, yeah. But do you have? Do you want to do residency? If so what department? Mm-hmm. Surgery? Not surgery? Anything? That definitely not surgery. Okay. <laughs> I think one thing I learned doing mouse bone marrow transplants is that I don't think I'm a surgeon. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't think I have that dexterity, or I'm just not. <laughs> I'm not willing to sit down and learn it. Um, <laughs> but it's just not. It's just not quite as interesting to me. My yeah, I, I think that. It, surgery it's not as compatible with a, a science career either i think if you yeah. want to be a really good surgeon you have to spend a lot of time practicing and sure. that's something i'm interested in doing so probably not surgery um i haven't you know I, i've played around with the idea of um hematology uh, yeah maybe something in there i i'm not sure right now like mm-hmm. i think my phd will honestly determine a lot like if i really want to keep going in what my PhD is, I probably would do something, yeah, maybe in hematology or somewhere where like it connects well with my science. I actually also have really been interested in immunotherapies Mm. for cancer. I think um, like in general, cellular engineering and the creation of cell-based therapeutics, I think just has the potential to impact hugely patient lives, whether it's in cancer with immunotherapy or whether it's, you know, treating these diseases we've talked about on this, this podcast with bone marrow transplant. Um, So Maybe I could imagine if I really decided I wanted to work more in immunotherapies because I thought I thought there was more opportunity opportunity there. Um, I could imagine maybe doing some kind of pediatric oncology or something. For sure, but for sure. I really have not thought about it that much. And too early, you know, anyways. Yeah, maybe. it's far yeah. too early. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. Yeah. Wow. And um, does have you thought about like the income, salaries, and stuff? Because postdoc, mm-hmm. if you do postdoc. I don't think you're going to make as much as you worth in the market if you did anything else, including telemarketing, right? <laughs> like, have you, yeah, have, you have you had those thoughts in your head? Um, I haven't thought about it too much. I will say that I'm not, I'm not against industry. I actually, um, I've seen, I have some some personal connections, I suppose, to, to people that have done big biotech things, and I have no. I have nothing against biotech or, or taking that route or going through the industry mm-hmm. route. And I actually think that if you really want to get something in the clinic, eventually that's probably the route you have to go. Yeah. I think the trade-off is in academia, you have the opportunity. It might be a little harder at first and it's harder to get money and um, it could be really competitive, but you have this freedom Makes to sense. just study things For like sure. that you don't have like an industry, you need to have a product you're going to sell at the end. For sure. And so that limits what you can do you know, what things you can do with your company. And in academia, yeah. you can just say, I want to study like this thing because I'm interested in it. Yeah. And you can get somebody to just do that. And there's no like strings attached. Um, but I can imagine if I wanted, if I had a therapeutic I wanted to take forward and I needed a lot of money to do that, I don't think academia is the place to be asking for a lot of money to develop therapeutics. You want to really take that into biotech. And so I can imagine maybe like ultimately in my career being involved in biotech. Wow. Yeah. Which By the way, I think we never had this long a conversation, you and I, but <laughs> I just remember talking to you at the cafeteria where we saw Matthew Portis look like. Remember? Oh, yeah. You're <laughs> like, that's not, I also thought it was Matt Portis. I think I told him that. Like, when I saw him, I was like, oh my God, I thought this guy was you. And the quad, like, <laughs> tried to, like, call Yeah, him. I said hi. And he yeah, looked like I him. That. I totally sandbagged you. I'm so sorry. 
I should have known. And I it did look just like him in your defense. Like just like him. I also thought it was he did. Good. That's the decoy gene, GB1. If he quits for math, he's going to get like 50% of efficiency. Yeah. <laughs> that was exactly, that was like half math. Yeah, that's okay, enough to. But hey, um, I think that you have like huge, like I think like you're so entrepreneurial in terms of science. You're thinking about like the, uh, the, the closing the finishing line, like immunotherapy, pediatric cancer to lysosomal disease and all these things. So I'm like super, super excited for, uh, for like you, when you become a PI or, you know, down the line after a few pandemics, maybe. Um, <laughs> I'm actually really excited for reals. Thank you. I'm excited too. And yeah. I'm also excited for you. Oh, okay. okay. Sure. Anyways, but uh, <laughs> thanks. Oh, for also, I just like to remind you of that salad that you bought me for lunch, because remember you bet me yeah. that. Yeah. That was the other part of that story. You mistook that guy from Apporteus and you lost the bet and had to buy me lunch. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> um, I actually did. Um, by the way, um, I don't eat salad, salad anymore. Um, you should try. No. Yeah. Give it a shot. You don't eat salad at all. What's the logic? Uh, all, all, all only meat. Oh, is this like a paleo thing? No, it's just uh, um, since there's so, many no so much, like there's a lot of noise in, some, in terms of nutrition. So I, I'm just trying to I eat agree. like my grandparents like ancestrally mm. consistent diet um but they they ate meat and also like organs and all these different things mm. so i'm trying to be like I'm, I'm just trying that i have bad knees so i'm trying to see if that's going to help it a little bit but uh no conclusion yet uh, but it right. does help you save money for food and you don't have to cook much you just grill every single day <laughs> that's true so very true all right anyway. you'll have to let me know how that goes <laughs> but Sam, thank you so much for your time and uh, thanks for um, your scientific talk. And maybe in the future, when you make some progress in your PhD research, come back on a podcast and we can talk about your stuff. That sounds great. Thank you for having me. It was a fun conversation. Okay, I appreciate it. And uh, happy Washington uh, <laughs> State. Happy almost holidays. <laughs> And seven more days, and then we're done with this quarter. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, happy almost finals ending. Agreed. Did you take the exams yet? <laughs> the take-homes? No. Okay. No, wait. Which one? Wait. It's I due on 8th, so you have to oh, take yeah, it. Oh, yeah. The Palm one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't taken it yet. I'm Make a sure last-minute taker of exams. <laughs> Me too. So <laughs> There's no reason to take it early in my mind. Like. <laughs> no. <laughs> you can only have studied less at that point. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I agree. By the way, what are you like excited about next quarter? Like, Are you going to do remote? By the way, I'm not we... going to do remote. Okay. I'm just so thankful for the Stanford School of Medicine to like give us a lot of options. Yeah, like, I do think it's really nice. I thought amazing. about it. I think this is a time you can make the most of the coronavirus weirdness by, yeah, if there's something you wanted to do that you couldn't do because you were physically located at school, like yeah. this is the time. So you can, it opened a door, closed a lot of doors, but it opened a door. Um, and you can imagine taking advantage of that. I don't really have much that I can easily like things that are that I want to do that would be easy to kind of do remote I think so I'll be back at Stanford mm -hmm. I'll be doing some lab work too okay, okay um yeah if you ever come down to SoCal let me know are right, you in San Diego right yeah I've been in San you Diego surf? I surf pretty much oh I've been wanting to learn how to surf you come please yeah, I'll turn you up and eat tacos yes tacos burritos San Diego is an amazing place San Diego is not like SoCal. San, San Diego has its own culture. It has a SoCal okay. weather, but San Diego is its own species. So I All highly right, I recommend been, that. So, okay. I'll have to come down. All right, Sam. Have a good rest of the night.
All right, you too. All right, see y'all. Bye. So that was the interview with Sam. And before you go, please subscribe to this podcast and uh, please rate this podcast and let me know in your comments how I can make this podcast better, what you like about this podcast and what you want to hear more. So that's it. And I will see you in the next episode. Peace.